It's July 28th, 2019, and this is episode 405 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, today we're kicking things off with another Global Voices interview. This time we're in the Philippines talking Bitcoin with Luis Buenaventura. After the break, I'll be rejoined by guest host Alex Gladstein of HRF.org for a look back at the cultural perspectives, realities, and takeaways from our interview series so far. Thanks to Purse.io and BlockchainTraining.org for sponsoring today's episode. Enjoy the show. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm joined once again by Alex Gladstein for the Human Rights Foundation for another interview showcasing perspectives and voices beyond the borders of our everyday experience. For today's conversation, we're joined by Luis Buenaventura. Luis, thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much, guys. I'm super happy to be here. So first, where in the world are you located? And outside of or before you became involved with cryptocurrency, what's your background? I'm calling in from Manila in the Philippines, and I've been a tech entrepreneur all my life. I discovered Bitcoin in very early 2014 and kind of took it from there. My original intention was to kind of make a BitPay type system for the Philippines. But what it turned into eventually was kind of one of the very early remittance solutions that use Bitcoin as a backend. And I'm always going to be very, very focused on kind of the Southeast Asian corridor, the Philippine corridor, that's kind of my neck of the woods. It sounds like you got involved with cryptocurrency because of remittances primarily. Talk us through how you got involved, what your area of interest was, and what problem you were trying to solve. The Philippines is actually one of those countries that is very remittance-oriented. Our GDP is about 10% just inbound remittances. So, you know, it's a very big part of our economy. So, you know, if you give a Filipino a technology that allows value to transfer over the internet at a very low cost, the first thing that they will think of is, hey, maybe this is a remittance solution. So what we ended up doing all those years ago was trying to pilot a solution that allowed Bitcoin to be the vehicle for the transfer, but then we would actually do a real-time conversion into Philippine pesos so that the person receives a local currency. We had no illusions of being able to teach 103 million Filipinos what Bitcoin was back in 2014. So we knew pretty early on that you would have to do all of that heavy lifting for them, accept the Bitcoin on their behalf, turn it into pesos on their behalf, and then deliver it to them somehow. And that turned out to be a lot more complicated than I thought. So the next four or five years of my life has really just been trying to negotiate the last mile delivery side in my own country, because you know we're not a particularly banking-oriented population. Only about one in five adults have bank accounts out here. So the delivery of cash needs to be literally cash. It can't be like bank deposits and stuff like that. So as you can imagine, it's pretty messy. We've talked to so many folks so far in this series from countries like Nigeria, Venezuela, Iran, who got interested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency because of a financial barrier that they noticed in their country. And they started to realize that there might be a technical social solution to the fact that it was so hard to move money from one place to another, whether you had family abroad or not. So, you know, in your mind, like how effective has Bitcoin or let's say this broader cryptocurrency ecosystem been in addressing that solution? And how easy is it for folks, if we want to send money in the form of Bitcoin, for example, into the Philippines, I mean, how easy is it these days to turn that into local fiat? It's getting easier and easier. And certainly it's easier now than it was back in 2014, right? Because you didn't really have that many providers back then. So we operate purely on a business level and we try not to work with retail customers all that much. So the way that my company works is it's my job primarily to talk to international money transfer operators and tell them that, hey, I know that you're sending you know, 100, 150 remittances to the Philippines on behalf of your customers every single day. And I know that if we use Bitcoin instead of your current methods, we would be able to save you some money. You could pass those savings on to your customers if you wanted, or you could just increase your profit margin if you wanted. But the bottom line is that we think that there is enough savings inherent in using Bitcoin such that if you use Bitcoin and you use my company, Bloom, to do the final conversion, you'll be able to come up with a lower transaction fee. Could you walk us through how you would do that using a smartphone today, like in Manila, with international business, let's say? 
okay, so let, maybe we should start from like step one, right? So the majority of remittances that come into the Philippines are coming from what we call overseas Filipino migrant workers, right? So these are Filipinos who have left their families behind here in the Philippines. They've gone to work in places like the Middle East, all over North Asia, all over North America, because they can earn a little bit more there. And then every month they send a portion of their salaries back home. And depending on which continent we're talking about, typically that portion can be as high as 25% to 30% of their monthly wage. So what is the current situation? So they walk up to a physical remittance outlet. And this looks like your average Western Union, although Western Union is not really all that great for stuff like this anymore. But it is still a kiosk. It is still a place where they can hand off physical currency. And the corridor that we were doing this most prolifically was South Korea. So in the middle of Seoul, which is the capital of South Korea, we had like one very small physical location owned by a partner of ours. And every Sunday morning, he would have about 150 Filipinas sending their money back home. So they would have bills because if they're only contractually working in a particular country for six to 12 months, then they often don't have banking. So they just have cash in their hands. And this is probably an issue that affects many, many thousands of people. Oh, yeah. So there's about 10 million Filipinos that are currently overseas. About half of them are are contract workers. Wow. So yeah, most of them will be dealing purely in hard cash. And most of them won't have a local bank account set up in the country they're working in. Almost certainly not. Because most of them don't even know where they're going to be a year from that. You know, if their contract ends and they have to find another job elsewhere, it could be in a completely different country. So the tendency is that you don't really lay down roots there. Anyway, so they would come in with their hard cash. They would fill out a customer form and then kind of fill in the name, the address of their beneficiary back home. And the remittance company would accept their cash. And, you know, kind of magically, pesos appear maybe 30 minutes later, wherever their family happens to be. Now, what's happening in the background there is that our partner, I guess in this case in South Korea, was actually converting those Korean won into Bitcoin, and then they were passing it on to us as Bitcoin. Then it becomes Bloom's job in the Philippines to actually turn it back into pesos and then deliver it through a variety of different cash delivery networks. So when I say cash delivery, I don't literally mean, you know, like a guy in a motorcycle is going to drive it up to their house, although that is still possible. What we actually do is we have cash pickup locations. And these are a combination of convenience stores, pawn shops, financial institutions all over the country. We've got about 10,000 of those. And what we do is we send the beneficiary an SMS with a tracking number and instructions that say along the lines of, hey, you've got a few thousand pesos that are waiting for you right now from your relative, your husband, your wife, friend, or whatever in South Korea. And if you walk up to one of these cash pickup locations right now, you can withdraw this money as long as you can show them your government-issued ID. So that's either a driver's license, a passport, social security, et cetera, et cetera, which is very much the same behavior as you would see if they were using a more traditional system like, say, Western Union or MoneyGram or any of these other things, right? So to them, it feels very, very similar. They don't actually even register the fact that it might have been a different system altogether that delivered that value to them ultimately. And we kind of designed it that way because we don't think it was really relevant to these folks whether or not it was crypto. And Bloom's mission has always been to make this stuff usable first without necessarily going into the philosophical argument of why you need to decentralize your currencies. So our thing was mostly reduce cost, reduce cost first, prove that this system is as good or better than the traditional, and then figure out if there's a educational path down the road where these folks would actually be interested in finding out why we were even able to make it any cheaper. So there's a theory among some people in the Bitcoin community that the killer app for it, at least now, is this idea that it's sort of an upgrade on the wire, the upgrade on moving money from one place to another in a way that's relatively very fast, obviously permissionless and censorship resistant. It sounds like you've kind of taken that theory and turned it into a growing business. Yeah, I've actually believed for a while now that the main 
function that Bitcoin can serve at this point in time is as an alternative reserve currency. Because if you go back to my original example, you know, South Korea remitting to Philippines, I mean, it sounded like it was inefficient the way that I was describing it, because you go from South Korean won to Bitcoin and then from Bitcoin to Philippine peso. But actually, that is exactly what's happening even in traditional remittances, because they have to go from South Korean won to U.S. dollar and then U.S. dollar to Philippine peso. So there is two conversions no matter what. So the only time there is not two conversions is if you're transactions are actually originating from the United States. So the Bitcoin path is actually an alternative to the U.S. dollar as a cross-border settlement mechanism. And that's kind of how we've been using it for a really long time. If we've got time later, I can talk about how expats are using it here. But we've observed that the general trend is to use Bitcoin as the way to cross the border and then still use the local currency where appropriate, because that is still kind of, you know, I mean, I don't expect anyone to be paying for their coffee with Bitcoin anytime soon here. So we've spoken to people from different countries so far on liquidity time, this idea that, well, once I send you Bitcoin right now, let's say on an open source bread wallet type thing, where then you'd have to go to like a local Bitcoins or like some sort of exchange. I mean, how quickly can you turn non-KYC open source Bitcoin into pesos? If you walked into one of our participating money changers here in the Philippines, and we've got a few dozen of them right now, you could walk into one of our participating money changers with your Bitcoin wallet, and you could tell them that you want to convert your Bitcoin into peso. The transaction takes about five minutes. So it is possible to do it. It's just that you would have to be in locations because it's very physical and you know, it certainly matters where you are in the Philippines. So we've got a handful all over the CBD. We're working on having a couple down south in our beach island region, which is very popular amongst the tourists. But that's kind of the current quickest way that you could do it. There are a growing number of ways to do it. We also have a pretty sizable crypto wallet here called Coins.ph, which is pretty well known. You would have to open an account with them, though, in order to actually do the conversion. So we were kind of looking for a slightly cleaner and less hands-off way to do it. So we've been talking primarily about Bitcoin here. And it sounds like as far as your customers are concerned, you're not really talking about cryptocurrency at all. Is Bitcoin the primary vehicle you see as moving this forward? Or do you think that there are use cases that could involve other cryptocurrencies? Bitcoin is a little bit expensive compared to some cryptocurrencies out there, especially when converted into local currencies. Does that matter relative to the utility? And generally, how do you feel about it? How do you think the community at large feels about it? The comparison I made earlier to Bitcoin being an alternative reserve currency kind of speaks a little bit to why we think that it is the only one that will really matter for this particular use case. And the reason for that is, you know, when you're talking about a reserve currency that does cross-border settlement, you're not actually representing each individual tiny $50 transaction as a Bitcoin transaction. What you're actually doing is you're batching them together. So for example, on any given day, we would do like one or two Bitcoin transfers that amount to, say, 150 individual remittances. So that could go all the way up to like two, four, five Bitcoin maybe in total. If you look at it from that perspective, it doesn't even really matter how much the network fees happen to be because at $25,000 or whatever the equivalent value was, $1 doesn't matter so much. So the things that become really less relevant to us is confirmation times and network fees because we only do two or three big transactions a day. And that's totally fine. That's totally acceptable. What does matter to us, and the thing that matters absolutely, like it will take up 100% of my time, is making sure that there is enough market depth on the Philippine side to absorb the incoming Bitcoin, which is why we don't really look at the other cryptocurrencies that much. Because if you told me that I have to find someone who can absorb, say, $100,000 worth of I don't know, whatever, XRP, for example, here in the Philippines, I would not be able to find that person. I would have a hard time finding that person without also taking a 5% haircut in the same breath. So to summarize then, the network effect here really trumps everything else as far as you're concerned. And the way that you're using it really is more like a settlement infrastructure than it is as a transactional infrastructure. You're, you provide a transactional service, but the way you're using the network doesn't actually require you to make all those transactions in really any sort of timely fashion. Sounds like you guys settle up once a day. Yes. The nice thing about using Bitcoin is 
if we wanted to do once a day settlement, we could. If we wanted to do multiple times a day, we could also do that. So it really depends on how big the total amounts are, right? So on a very busy day, maybe we'll see five separate settlements, which is not something that you would be able to pull off very easily if, say, this was a bank-based SWIFT transfer, right? Because SWIFT transfers will register once at the start of the banking day. You won't see another batch until the next day. So you're kind of locked into their daily kind of frequency. At least with Bitcoin, you can go granular if you absolutely wanted to. Right. You have the option there. Exactly. When it comes to your company and the way that you're talking to your customers, both people who are sending remittances from abroad and people who are receiving remittances locally, are you talking about cryptocurrency at all? Are you mentioning the word Bitcoin at all? Or is this purely a back-end sort of infrastructure play? So we tend to focus on being a back-end. We've been fairly quiet over the years because of that. We don't spend a lot of time on customer education, unless it's a specific type of event that we wanted to participate and stuff like that. But the thesis of what we're doing is that you can use this stuff without necessarily understanding how it works in the same way that you could use Gmail without having to understand how SMTP works. And that's kind of what we're hoping for here. And you have to remember that our primary customer tends to be people who, for all intents and purposes, are not very tech savvy. They're working minimum wage jobs in other countries because those pay three or four times more than a minimum wage job here in the Philippines. But that doesn't mean that they're particularly attuned to how cryptocurrency works. They wouldn't really have any real appreciation for it. As a pure functionality play then, you know, you've been doing this for a couple of years with Bloom. How much penetration do you think you actually have into that market? And I don't believe you've mentioned it in this conversation. What kind of difference in rates are you able to offer versus the conventional system? What's the value pitch for the end user? Sure. So South Korea was kind of our strongest corridor for a while. This was back in 2015 to early 2017. At one point, we were doing about $50 million a year inbound volume from South Korea. In the grand scheme of things, it's actually not that much. but the total remittances that South Korea does to Philippines traditionally, outside of the crypto market and all of that stuff, was only about $300 million anyway. So we were taking up a sizable chunk of it at the time. Now, what happened in 2017 was regulation kind of caught up with the South Korean side. And suddenly, South Korea became a little bit more conservative with how it treated companies that use cryptocurrency. And to this day, they continue to be a country that you know, does tons of cryptocurrency trading volume without any licensing or regulatory framework to guide the companies that are trying to engage in this stuff. So sadly, we had to kind of put a hold on that, whereas the Philippine side already had its regulatory framework in place for cryptocurrency trading, South Korea didn't. So we couldn't continue because like one side of the corridor was like in a gray market state. So we had to put a pause on that. So given that, what kind of policies or general stance does the Philippine government take on cryptocurrency? And I guess kind of in a related question to that, which you can answer here also, is in dealing with other governments outside of the Philippines, who is easiest to deal with? Who has been the most difficult to deal with? The Philippine stance on this stuff is we're strangely at the forefront, in my opinion. We currently have about 10 licensed cryptocurrency exchange companies here in the Philippines right now. Japan, I believe, has about a dozen. So we're almost at the same number. So it seems like the government's policy on this is to explore the new markets that this technology is starting to open for us and try to support the entrepreneurs that are experimenting in this space. And I don't think that you would call the last five years still an experiment, but I still feel like a lot of it is still learning for us. You know, So I'm constantly learning things about how you know, kind of the remittance infrastructure works here and how potentially overseas Filipinos can benefit from this stuff. Now, in terms of other governments overseas, you know, I've looked all over and strangely, I've not really found a lot of easy governments to work with, if that's the nicest way I could say it, because we've been chased away from all sorts of places, right? Like North America, Australia, we've been chased away from South Korea a few years back. And the thing is, I can't give you an answer that would point towards a really friendly government. I can tell you that there are some governments that are more tolerant. Thailand is a good example of a tolerant government. 
they've got temporary license for a handful of crypto exchanges over there right now. I can tell you that Singapore is tolerant. They've definitely got a blockchain initiative going on there on a bank level. You know, the Monetary Authority of Singapore is trying to position itself as the most progressive financial hub in Southeast Asia. So there is a move to be made there from a reputational standpoint to show that they are on the technological forefront. So Singapore is pretty friendly in the sense that they are willing to make their own experiments there. But, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it's not even the governments themselves that are kind of putting the dampers on this stuff. Sometimes it's the banks, right? So no matter what happens, we still have to work with banks. Our partners in other countries still need to work with banks. And if there is even a small possibility that either of us could get debanked for facilitating cross-border remittances across a particular set of countries, we're not going to take that risk because we need those banks either as our operational backbone or as simply a way for us to put our customer funds into if that's part of the process. So it's still very much a tricky world out there. There's a lot of weird little challenges and things like that. But I guess the one hopeful thing I can say is that it's a little bit clearer now than it was in 2014 when we were starting. So that's kind of the one bright side to all of this. So, you know, given that you're working directly on this within your community, where do you hope to be in two years? I'm trying to take the platform that we have and get it to as many businesses as we possibly can. So that's both remittance agents, money changers, and kind of micro financial institutions. The idea is that Bloom becomes more of a tooling company that allows these traditional licensed players to access cryptocurrency as necessary. Meaning that, you know, if you're a money changer or a foreign exchange broker here in the Philippines and someone comes along with half a Bitcoin, you have the tools necessary to do the conversion over the counter. Like those are the kind of things that we want to be able to do. And certainly our mission of making this stuff usable involves making it usable for the businesses who do have this on-the-ground presence. That's kind of what we're hoping to do more of over the next couple of years. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with Matt from Purse.io for another Sponsored Minute. Hey Matt. Hey Adam. At Purse, our mission is making crypto useful. We believe that the value of Bitcoin goes up for everybody when we expand its use case as digital cash. At Purse, we enable Bitcoin users to buy anything on Amazon with their Bitcoin for big discounts. We also spend half our resources as a company developing open source tools to get Bitcoin into more hands and make Bitcoin easier to send and receive for everybody. These tools include the Bitcoin full node and SPV node, the Bitcoin wallet, and the multi-sig server. All these applications are under active development and they get better every day. Check out our documentation and library of introductory developer guides at Bcoin.io. We can learn everything from cross-chain atomic swaps to building web-based Bitcoin tools with the Bcoin library. To start saving today, visit purse.io. And for more information about Bcoin, visit Bcoin.io or just look it up on GitHub. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Let's Talk Bitcoin has been covering blockchain technology for years, and you're hearing about it more than ever. Move past the jargon to gain a robust understanding at Blockchain Training Conference 2019. With three tracks of masterclasses taught by industry luminaries, you'll leave BTC 2019 confident with certifications to prove it. Earn your CBP certification to stand out from other experts. The LTB crew will also be there for a special live show. Register today at blockchaintraining.org to get an unparalleled education. That's blockchaintraining.org. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here again with Alex Gladstein of hrf.org. Hi, Alex. How are you doing, Adam? I'm pretty good. A couple of months ago, Alex approached me about doing some episodes focused on the world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in places where it really matters today and not just in theory. Today, I wanted to have a conversation with Alex to kind of wrap up that series that we did. We're still in the process of actually getting them on the air, but you know, we recorded them all over the course of two days, and 
it was a pretty intense experience. I was talking to a lot of people and getting a lot of different perspectives, seeing a lot of commonalities in those perspectives, even as they were in very different situations. Taking us back to kind of when you first contacted me and we started talking about this, what was your goal with this series? What thoughts did you want to highlight here? Yeah, well, I think that the Bitcoin community or the cryptocurrency community at large, in terms of the people who connect and coordinate and trade messages with each other on Twitter and on message boards, a lot of them largely live in Western countries, let's say, in Europe or America, where they have intact financial institutions and it's relatively easy to take out a line of credit and where there's working KYC AML laws that actually more or less do good things. But that's not the wider world, right? When you actually look at the globe and look at humans from a planetary point of view, you know, the majority of humans live under authoritarian governments. And I don't want to make jokes about, you know, the US president, but actually authoritarian societies where all power is in the hands of one person or one small group of people, and there is no meaningful opposition. And it's in these societies with these 4 billion people across 90 plus countries where the government not just has total control over politics, but also control over money meaning they control the production of money and they control the issuance of money and they confiscate money very easily and they can block their citizens from accessing foreign financial markets. And it's in these places that Bitcoin as a technology is actually very useful today. You know, not to single out any particular conversations that we have, but of the conversations that we have, it's hard for me to look at the situation and see where there's really authoritarian controls in places outside of the kind of meta picture, right? From a U.S. financial global system reserve currency type of perspective, there's definitely a lot of controls there. But that almost feels like it's at the supranational level, right? Where it's a country that's stopping another country. But you're talking about the layer below that. You're talking about a country not stopping another country, but a country stopping its citizens from doing what they want or what's in their best interest. So that's more like a Venezuela than it is an Iran, I guess. I think there's a level of it in every country, even in Western democracies. I mean, one of the things that's shocked me the most from my experiences learning about Bitcoin and payments and the way money works is how kind of draconian financial controls are, even in like what we would call free countries, right? Where we have like the Bank Secrecy Act in the United States, right? Which most people just don't really know about. But, you know, if you think about the overreach and the power that government has when it comes to money, it's pretty startling. And then you go from there to look at countries like Turkey or Iran or Venezuela or China, where the government's really abused that power. I mean, I think Turkey's a great example where currently Turkey's in the news for Erdogan, the you know, so-called quote unquote democratically elected leader of Turkey. In reality, he's a dictator and he abuses his power of the purse, right? So he basically dictates to the central bank what to do, which has yielded disastrous results for the Turkish economy. And this is one of the reasons why Turkey today is the country in the world with the highest per capita number of users of Bitcoin. And I think that that's like a very clear correlation, right? Same thing in Venezuela, the government totally destroyed the economy and people, not because they think it's cool, but I think from what we've heard on our interviews, like, cause they kind of had to, or they kind of realized they could actually access financial markets using Bitcoin. They didn't start using Bitcoin again because it was something that was like fascinating. It was just like, oh, I can actually use this to send money. A friend of mine was talking about Iran and she was saying her family, the only way to get money from London, where she and her partner lived to her partner's father, who's in Tehran, who's undergoing cancer treatments, the only way for them to get money to their family is with Bitcoin. So a, a lot of times it's just out of necessity. One of the interesting things to me about the time period that we're in is that you know, I brought up reserve currency, right? The US has the reserve currency and the government has been using it sort of as a bludgeon to try and get other countries to do what they want. And that worked for a long time. But the concern has always been that by disenfranchising people and making it so they can't use the obviously useful system, they wind up creating their own systems, which you no longer have any control over. And now you actually have to compete against which then puts your system, which only really existed by nature of the fact that you didn't have to compete with anything, in kind of an awkward situation. And, you know, we've seen that somewhat recently with a special purpose vehicle launched to allow European countries and other countries to do business with Iran in a way that bypasses U.S. sanctions. And these are from supposed allies of the U.S. So again, we seem to be at a point in time where these monetary controls, whether you're talking about at the individual level or at the supranational level, don't really seem like the systems are holding in the way that perhaps they once did. Yeah. And if you look at folks that are in Iran today, for example, 
And I know that there's both domestic repression and also sort of foreign sanctions. Um, but essentially, there was a, a well-known Bitcoin critic on Twitter who was saying, and I'll quote, there isn't a single goddamn thing that Bitcoin can do for retail that Apple Pay doesn't already do 10 times better. And last week, I was in Taiwan, and I watched Nouriel Roubini debate Arthur Hayes of BitMEX. And Nouriel kept saying stuff like, well, why the hell would we need this stupid, scammy network when WeChat Pay does it way better? And Arthur's kind of sitting there like, well, like, what if you don't trust your government or you don't trust that company? And on Twitter, Zia, who we interviewed, responded to this critic saying, I can't use Apple Pay, PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, or anything like them. I'm from Iran. I can use Bitcoin. What do you have to say? And I obviously didn't respond. But like, this is the obvious use case in one scenario. And I think it's helpful to break out from our experiences interviewing folks kind of four key financial obstacles or problems or issues why Bitcoin might be useful. So number one might be the deflationary aspect of it, right? So this is obviously only in extreme examples like Venezuela or Zimbabwe or maybe Somaliland, but there are like hyperinflationary countries where you would want an asset. And even though Bitcoin's quite volatile, it's very helpful in that regard. The second one would be the permissionless aspect. So you have deflationary aspect, then you have permissionless. And this is the key part where you don't need a bank account or an ID card to access financial markets. So this is like obviously the example that our Iranian friend is talking about. He doesn't need to go through any sort of state-sanctioned avenue. The third area that's quite important is privacy. And you've done many episodes on this, but you know, generally speaking, I think what people need to understand today is that with the proper level of operational security, if you're using the Bitcoin network in a healthy way, it is absolutely way more private than using the existing banking system or Apple Pay or whatever. I mean, you take yourself from a target of easy surveillance, meaning like a click, to a government literally would have to hire a chain analysis company to try and figure out what you're doing. And again, if you're practicing good digital hygiene with Bitcoin, you can make it very difficult for them to kind of get a full picture of what you're doing. So the privacy thing's key for me because we're starting to see how uh, in protest movements around the world, like even in Hong Kong, how folks are using cash to buy burner SIM cards to be able to coordinate with Telegram without disclosing their identity. And of course, public transit tickets as well, so that they can buy public transit tickets with cash and not allow themselves to be spied on. We all know that cash is disappearing, right? So, you know, the privacy aspect of Bitcoin, which needs a lot of work, of course, and I'll be the first person to say that it's not good enough right now. But I have a feeling based on the technical roadmap of what's out there and what people are working on both on chain and on second layer stuff, that it will get to where we need it to be. And we do need it to be there. And then the final aspect would be the censorship resistance, right? So whether it comes to confiscation or some of the stories we heard about, even in India, like a quote unquote democracy of governments kind of seizing and demonetizing, et cetera. So this idea that like no one can stop your payments. So we have this technology that gives us several different things. We have this deflationary angle. We have the permissionless angle. We have the sort of private angle. And then we have the censorship resistance angle. So it is pretty interesting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the trends that we saw, I mean, like that was the kind of real thing. It's this enabling technology idea. Even when we were talking with Christina and Leo, it's obvious there that the use case is different than someplace like Nigeria, but the utility is still basically the same. And the reasons why the utility is the same is also basically the same. So like the specifics of what it's actually being used for on the ground might be different, but the broad set of characteristics turn out to be really, really useful no matter how you're deploying them, so long as these things are problems. The other thing that's interesting about Bitcoin, of course, is that it's this deflationary asset in an environment where it's competing, in theory, with everything that's either in the process of inflating or hyperinflating under certain extreme scenarios. So again, it's like Bitcoin doesn't even have to be deflationary in order to have that advantage. It just has to not be inflationary in order to have that advantage. And yet it is deflationary. So that makes it perhaps even more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. When you go back and you listen to some of these interviews with people like Luis from the Philippines and Aparna, who's working in India, and especially Timmy in Nigeria, I mean, if Bitcoin only did this one thing, and as I just mentioned, it does quite a lot of things, but even if it just allowed us to do these relatively quick global censorship resistant payments that don't require the use of the existing financial infrastructure. That's a revolution alone. And I understand that it takes a little while for people to understand that and let that sink in. But just the fact that today you can send a payment with nothing more than a smartphone and access to the internet to anyone else in the world who has a smartphone and access to the internet, you don't need to ask permission from anyone and it goes through pretty fast. And the fees are pretty small right now. 
that to me is pretty mind-blowing. It continues to be. One thing that was characterized by almost everybody, pretty much not Hong Kong, but everybody else, was that Bitcoin was almost always a transitory step, right? To getting a local currency or to you know getting money to someone or something like that. Very, very little in terms of people holding it because they thought it was going to appreciate in value. Perhaps maybe they were, but that wasn't the primary use, right? That might be an auxiliary thing they do. Yeah, and there's no, I mean, you talk to these folks and I've continued my conversations with them. I mean, there's not like a real merchant adoption. So, I mean, it's not like you're going to go buy coffee with your Bitcoin right now. Well, I think that's the question. Is that where we're headed or is that not actually the destination of where we're going at all? Well, if we have today the technology, which as we've explored, is super helpful for people as a bridge between monies, as a way to send value from one country to another, and then folks can turn it into local fiat currency. It opens the floodgates for a lot of commerce and remittances and things like that. But I believe from a human rights point of view that we need Bitcoin to evolve into a payments platform for everyday use or else we're screwed, you know, or else all of our micropayments are going to be surveilled. So it's sort of like a necessary thing that needs to happen and it requires a lot. But at the end of the day, what companies like Square are doing are highly promising. I mean, the fact that you've got Jack hiring a team to work with him to create potentially lightning pins via the cash app so that I can zip, zap, zip and pay for whatever I want via Amazon or the MetroCard or whatever via the Square Cash app would be massive, right? Taking Bitcoin from where it is today, which is this bridge between two monies, this way to move value anywhere else on earth, which is extraordinary enough. But we need to keep building it and, and we need to keep educating people about it and people need to keep investing and and pushing the technology so that it does become your daily payments platform or else you will live in a financial surveillance state and eventually that will be bad for you. One question that's been coming up a lot recently in other conversations I've been having is this question about theory versus reality. One of the things that was really driven home to me by all of these interviews is that This is very much about reality. And this is very much about what works today and what solves the problem today. And, you know, I went into this series of interviews thinking that we were going to ask people from places where the value scales are dramatically different Are you using Bitcoin? Are transaction fees a problem? And I expected to hear them saying alternatives, if nothing else, Litecoin, right? Just because of the much lower per transaction cost. And in practice, we never heard that once. We basically heard that. Everybody uses Bitcoin, so therefore the only thing it makes sense to use is to use Bitcoin, you know, and maybe speculate in something else, especially in Hong Kong and the more sophisticated areas. I think it's important though, because like I would consider myself like a freedom maximalist, right? So when it comes to encrypted messaging, I'm gonna use what's best. Right now, when you're looking at what Bitcoin offers today, or let's say like more broadly speaking, what cryptocurrency offers today. It offers, again, a way for you to move money around relatively quickly to anyone else in the world, unencumbered by the traditional financial barriers. That's like its real use case at the moment. It is not useful, again, for like quick payments, merchant adoption stuff. We're just not there yet. And we need it to be there again for our ability to fight surveillance and retain our privacy in the digital age. But we're not quite there yet. So for where it is today, we need to look at local liquidity because in its current form, in its current use case, you need to be able to turn your cryptocurrency into local fiat money for it to be useful. And when it comes to liquidity, as what we've heard, and of course, what what we've researched at the Human Rights Foundation is that this is just very, very limited for anything beyond Bitcoin. And it's actually quite available when you talk about Bitcoin, whether we were talking about someone, you know, outside of a urban area in Iran, or, you know, someone in India or Nigeria, like we heard it could take anywhere from minutes to a couple hours for me to send someone Bitcoin and for them to turn it into local currency. That's pretty extraordinary. And I just don't think you have that with projects that are like DAI or, you know, Zcash or Monero. Like these are all cool projects that we want to like explore and see what happens with them. But it just doesn't sound like there's local liquidity in a lot of places so far. So after we did our series of interviews, but before we talked today, and we haven't actually talked about it, Facebook released the formal specification behind their proposed Libra project, which in large part aims to do many of the things that we've seen that Bitcoin is in fact doing today as far as enabling remittances and banking the unbanked and that sort of thing. But the Libra project, of course, has a massive amount of resources behind it, basically supranational corporate support. And we've been jokingly calling it, you know, like corporate coin, right? 
because it does seem to be like if you were going to take the idea of a global supranational money, but make it so that it was about companies as opposed to governments, this seems like it could actually do it. You know, from a lot of perspectives, there are problems with this approach. From one perspective, I like it in that I think that one of the most damaging monopolies that exists is the monopoly that governments hold over regional and national currencies, because as we've said, whether it's the supranational system or it's the individual national systems, they basically all abuse them. And they don't do a good job because in large part, the downsides are sort of hidden or at least extended out in time before you really start to see it. So it's politically an expedient way, even if in the long term, it's highly destructive. That's a monopoly that's really never been challenged. And yet we could see something like Libra with the amount of money, the amount of support behind it actually challenge that. From that perspective, I'm very interested in Libra because I think that the breaking of that monopoly would not mean that Libra would have a new one, but that there just would be more ability to compete with global currencies than perhaps there is today. This might be an entirely idealistic perspective. I'm very curious kind of for what your thoughts are on Libra, what you think it could accomplish and whether you think that it's a good thing or a bad thing on net. It's interesting because I've had the chance to talk about Libra with quite a few of the folks that we had interviewed in this series, and all of them are pretty excited about it. All of them think it's going to be huge. Just look at Timmy and Luis, just to take two of the people we talked to. Facebook is huge in Nigeria. I mean, we're talking a country that's going to be bigger than the United States by 2050 in terms of population. Most of these people are on Facebook. Philippines is part of the internet.org project, right? So Luis was telling me when he boots up his phone, it automatically connects to the internet Facebook provides. Now he has like his own plan, so he switches. But you've got a lot of people in the Philippines, millions of people, 40 million people around the world, but millions of them are actually in the Philippines, whose only access to the internet is provided by Facebook. Now, apparently what he was telling me is it gives you access to Facebook, your messages, your friends, and then a handful of other websites that Facebook kind of approves. Now, this is obviously like not ideal. And as a civil libertarian, I would say this is like, you know, arguably bad in a lot of aspects. But at the end of the day, I'd rather have them access that than nothing at all. You know, like we have to be philosophically flexible here a little bit. So at the end of the day, you've got a lot of people who are going to get this exposure to Libra, hopefully, if it works out, if they can actually get past the regulators. But when you talk to people like Luis and Timmy, you understand that, yeah, if you have Naira or Pesos, I mean, you're going to want Libra. I mean, it's going to be ostensibly tied to this basket of the top performing currencies in the world. And, you know, for Nigerians and Filipinos, like they're going to want to store their assets in Libra for sure over their national currency. And this is going to cause quite the crisis. And it's going to be very interesting to watch. Now, from a broader perspective, I do think that this idea of that people like Andreas and others have been saying where you've got now, you know, government money and then corporate money and people's money, right? Where people's money is Bitcoin and corporate money is Libra. And then you have fiat money. I actually think that the end game of government money is actually WeChat pay. Because basically, I mean, the Chinese government doesn't need a cryptocurrency. They don't need blockchain technology. They already have like the ultimate end game of money, which is like basically a company that runs the money system, in this case, Tencent, which is controlled by the Chinese government. And they've set up, you know, a social media payment system that more than a billion people use that's completely surveillable and controllable and confiscatable. So to me, that's like the end game of government money because the Chinese government controls it, right? Libra is different. Libra is that corporate money because at the end of the day, it sounds like they will have more power than governments, right? They will be kind of like sovereign and autonomous. Yeah, they'll be unrestricted by governments was kind of the vibe that I got is how they've set it up. It's kind of like when an exchange lists a coin, like who's going in the basket of the Libra coin, right? You know, it's going to be such a big deal. And I do think they're going to be sufficiently different from like a WeChat pay, like end game, like that will be that corporate money. And then you will have Bitcoin, which is like, you know, that sort of red pill moment. I think a lot of people are going to get exposure to these government payment systems that will look a lot like WeChat pay and this corporate money, potentially Libra. And both of these things are similar in as much as you will need to, I believe you will need to KYC completely for all this stuff and abide by all the rules and regulations, et cetera. I don't believe in what David Marcus is saying that they're going to be able to go permissionless and decentralized. I mean, he, he may be honest in his intentions, but I don't believe that either Facebook itself or governments will allow them to do that. In practice, we haven't ever seen it happen either. So let's just assume that like, it will be very transformative and very helpful for a lot of people but you will need to KYC to be able to use it, right? So people who are using that digital asset and potentially storing some of their assets in Libra, I mean, they're gonna like learn about this Bitcoin thing and it's gonna be like a very interesting moment, right? So I do think in the future, we're gonna have all three types of money and you know, Bitcoin retains 
massive advantages in so many of these different aspects in terms of, I mean, the ones I just mentioned in terms of it being permissionless, in terms of it being deflationary, in terms of it being potentially more private, at least you can you know fight for yourself, and in terms of being decentralized. I mean, both Libra and, of course, the government money have a single point of failure. They're much more easily surveillable. They can impose KYC, and they will be inflationary. So Bitcoin will retain, I think, a lot of value. It seems like Libra's primary advantage is that it's going to be big, right? Like it's going to be big and that's valuable both from like a network effect standpoint and from an adoption standpoint. And it's also valuable from an ability to stand up to governments. And, you know, during the, our conversation about this, I guess a couple of weeks ago at this point, Jonathan Mohan uh, posited that actually <laughs> what could happen is that India is like, oh no, you can't be here. And then Facebook comes in and says, all right, we have a billion dollars that we're going to be buying bonds with for our, you know, low interest returns, because that's how the investment token works. You know, like, what's the number that we have to buy of your bonds before you're happy with this and you feel like we're a contributing part of the system? Because ultimately, they're going to have enough money to basically go to every major country that they care about and do that. Yeah, and I think India may resist for a long time, but eventually they'll probably give in. It just seems like it would be such a boon for Indian citizens to be able to use WhatsApp and transmit small amounts of value to their families. I mean, if it's a truly democratic country, and that is being tested right now in India in a lot of ways, the people will elect someone who will allow them to be more connected to the outside world. I think it's very easy to make an argument right now that governments are not anxious to give up any power when it comes to money because they need it. And so it's less a question about whether they can survive and more a question about whether they can resist, right? Because governments ultimately wind up doing what they have to do in order to make things continue, even if that winds up being an aggressive shift away from whatever the policies were, if the alternative is existential. I think that that's what I mean by bigness, right? Like you think about Bitcoin or something trying to fight that battle with India. Who would fight that battle? Like there is nobody who would fight that battle, right? Like maybe a local company would fight that battle or, you know, you get you know, somebody within the government who's highly placed enough and has enough connections, right? But I couldn't imagine that a corporation, right, is like, I'm going to fight this fight with India because we want to use Bitcoin. But I can imagine it happening with this supranational, you know, corporate token, again, just because the incentives are so in favor of breaking those monopolies. What's so interesting is like Facebook immediately, like within minutes, you know, was the topic of conversation with governments, at least transparent governments, in the West where we can actually see the proceedings of their conversations. So for example, look at like Maxine Waters in the United States or any of the number of politicians in Europe. I mean, obviously it must've caused quite a splash in China, Russia, other places as well. We just didn't hear about it, right? So they're gonna like absorb a lot of the attention and attacks over the next couple of years as they try and set up this global payment regime. Meanwhile, the Bitcoiners and the other folks building cryptocurrency will proceed, I think, and it may be like a helpful thing in as much as they won't have as much of the spotlight. I mean, the attention is really going to be on Facebook because at the moment, you know, governments are still too arrogant. They don't think Bitcoin is really that much of a big deal, but they definitely think Facebook's a big deal. So that's kind of like what I think will shape the next couple of years. A couple of years ago, we talked about the transition from something that doesn't exist to something that's done well and exploited by a centralized organization to something that you know, becomes decentralized out of necessity, effectively. And at the time, we were talking about Uber, you know, which broke the monopolies, right, and made it so ride-sharing was a thing that you could do, effectively destroyed the whole taxi industry in doing so, but ultimately did so by fighting these localized battles, right, because they were able to, because they were small enough. And then as they succeeded in terms of growing and as they got bigger, they've made it harder and harder for themselves and easier for governments to go after them because ultimately they're just a company. So my theory continues to be that Uber is eventually going to die. And what will eventually come out of that are companies that build frameworks for providing rideshare services, but don't actually do any of the dot connecting themselves in a way that would make them legally liable, or even more so protocols that don't have a company behind them at all, where the companies are actually taxi companies using the rideshare infrastructure as a way to market their services, find customers and stuff like that. And you get the advantage of the decentralized system simply because the centralized version of the system is not allowed to exist. I see an obvious parallel here between what Libra is doing right now in terms of breaking open this market and the kind of eventual end state of it. Do you see that? Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, look, if Libra, let's say, succeeds and there are 250 companies and governments that are part of the validator set, right? And they're all investing and they're all making a killing. If you actually look at the business model of what they want to do, I mean, 
the interest that you could get on this stuff. I mean, it's mind boggling. I just published an article in Coindesk going through the math. <laughs> like people should do quite well. Now, the actual token holders won't see any of that, but they'll get the benefit of this massive, obviously much more frictionless financial network. So the question is, I was wondering to ask you, like, what do you think in 20 years the end game might look like for this if like most of the world's pretty much signed on to Libra? I mean, that's the question is like, do we get a protracted fight between governments and Libra? Because I think that's the scenario that you need to have Libra lose, right? Governments have to fight in a concerted manner against it because I don't think individually they have enough. Like Libra will just say, okay, well, fine. We're just not going to operate in that country, right? But the rest of the world gets the network. So you really would need like a concentrated pushback against it in order, I think, to even really threaten this thing once it gets off the ground. Something to watch is going to be who signs on, right? So I was in Asia when this was announced and I was at the Asia Blockchain Summit and talking to a lot of the folks who are based there. And they were like very outspoken about the fact that almost all of the companies that are signed on to be validators for Libra, at least at the moment, I don't know if they're actually signed on, but theoretically, the ones who've said that they want to be involved, like Visa, et cetera, they're all based in the United States and Europe. I mean, they're not Asian. So we will have to see. If they can actually be successful in bringing on some major Asian partners, then the dream, I think, becomes a little more viable. But otherwise, we may get this digital Cold War thing where you may see Libra. And again, just continuing that fractured world idea of like Europe and the United States and maybe you know Latin America and maybe part of Africa versus the Chinese model, which won't use Libra, which will use WeChat Pay, essentially, and all of South Asia and most of Africa and Central Asia would join China. And then India is kind of a wild card. So that could happen. Or we could see this like kind of bizarre homogeny of, you know, Libra dominance. I guess what I'm saying is no matter which way it shakes out, Bitcoin still has tremendous power. And in those two scenarios is certainly the one I would like to hitch my wagon to when it comes to a future world where we can actually preserve our rights and freedoms. And it is kind of optimistic and hopeful to talk to folks and look at the fact that even today when Money isn't even really seen as the crisis that I think it's going to be in five to 10 years. People are still so creative and resilient, and they figure out ways to use this very nascent technology to empower themselves. So I, I think that's only going to increase over time. And it's the reason why I think at least the Human Rights Foundation should try to do as much public education about it as possible for people living under repressive governments. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's show is sponsored by Purse.io and blockchaintraining.org. This episode featured content by Luis Buenaventura, Alex Gladstein, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Stephen and Adam with music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com or visit ltbshow.com from your mobile device to leave us a voice message, which you may hear get played on the air if we get anything good. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.